venture over with me to Matthew chapter 17. We're going to continue our exposition through this book, and we're actually continuing uh, very particularly this glimpse of glory, glimpse of glory part two. We're looking at the account of the transfiguration, because what we see is that the Christian life is hard. It's an endurance. It's a marathon run of faith, and He knows this as He calls us to follow Him, as He calls the disciples to follow after Him. And so, to get them to the finish line, so to speak, to strengthen their patience, to strengthen their endurance, He gives them this glimpse of glory, this foretaste of the glory that's to come, that they might persevere all the way to the end. Because the Christian life, it is hard now, but it really is something worth waiting for in the end. Some things are really worth waiting for, but of course, other things are not. And that's a question that comes to me every time I show up at a theme park, and especially it's a very busy, maybe you've done this, but you'll notice you'll see all these different lines for all the different rides that are about in the park, and you got to wonder, well, is that one really worth standing here in the hot sun? Is that one worth getting in line for and waiting for an hour, getting sunburned just so I can ride a two-minute ride? Probably not, but anyway, Disney knows this, and so they entice you as you wait in line. It's the genius that is Disney theme parks, of course, like Disneyland. Because as you get in line, and this was the thing that struck me as a young boy the first time I went to Disneyland in California, is how entertaining it was just frankly to be in line. You weren't just walking by through metal switchbacks back and forth. I was getting to see C-3PO real life talk to me as I was waiting for the Star Tours Star Wars ride. Frankly, I loved the ride, yes, but I was so taken by waiting in line. I waited for an hour plus, but it almost felt like nothing because everything I got to see in the building was so exciting just even prior to getting on the ride. I hardly noticed when my long wait was over because they were so ingenious about the way they framed their ride. Yes, you have to wait in a long line, but it's worth it. Here's a foretaste. It's going to get even better. Well, by some way of analogy, that's close in a way to the Christian life. As we return to our study of Matthew 17, as I noted, we're going to study the transfiguration, this event where Christ peels back His humanity that we might see His glory. And in that way, it's kind of like the waiting in line at the Disney theme park. We get this glimpse or preview of the greatness to come. As you get this preview, the point is it's tried to entice you, to encourage you. It's worth staying in line for the Christian life. You don't want to get out of line. You don't want to turn around. You don't want to go away and miss. You don't want to miss taking this journey. You don't want to miss the main attraction to come. And so that's what this glimpse of glory that Jesus provides does. It's to tell you, no, more glories to come. It's worth waiting in line. It's worth the hardship. Keep following me. So, but now we have to turn to that question very personally. Are you tempted to give in or give up in the Christian life? Where do you find obedience in the Christian life to be most difficult? Where does following Jesus scare you the most? Where does it make your heart skip a beat when you think, oh, I need to give up that. I need to let down my bitterness. I need to show forgiveness here. I need to sacrifice my standard of living here. I need to be generous to others here. I need to engage them here. I need to speak of you there. I don't know if it's worth it. I don't know if it's worth the cost. Or what's the sin or habit in your life you just don't seem to be able to put down. Or you just are so weary of fighting day after day. Have you thought about giving in or just giving up? 
Well, this text comes by the Holy Spirit to tell you to answer those doubts, to answer those reservations with this sure sight of glory. Namely, to tell you it is worth it. I know it hurts now, but it's totally worth it if you can just see the greatness of your Christ. That it's totally worth the wait. It's totally worth the cost. It's worth all the pain. Trust Him. Glory is coming. So let this glimpse of Christ's glory we see from the text here, let this glimpse of His glory assure you that following Jesus, even as He tells you to die to yourself, to take up your cross, following Jesus is always worth it, no matter how hard, no matter how costly. Another way to say it, let this glimpse of glory remind you, when you get to see Him on that final day, you'll never regret that you obeyed Him so much. Your only regret will be, why did I not obey you more? But to have that, to be carried along to the finish line by this preview, by this coming glory, we have four directives to, to help keep that glory in front of us that we might come to the finish line of faith. And the first directive is this. You need to just first plainly, you need to see in Jesus God's full glory. We looked at this last time, so we'll be brief here. But here's the first directive. You just need to know Jesus is glorious, even if that glory was veiled for sometime. Because here's the thing, as Jesus was on earth, you have to wonder, is the Christian life really worth it? It doesn't look so glorious, Jesus. He doesn't look too glorious by His appearance. All right, we talked about this. I mean, just by His very, by the very prophecies about Him, there was going to be no beauty or majesty that we should desire Him. He, he so took on humanity in the full that it's veiled His divine glory, such that when you looked at Jesus... He just looked like a normal guy. Remember, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. He didn't glow in the dark. He didn't have a a yellow glowing halo over his head to indicate who he is. He looked fully man because he was. He looked like any other first century Jew standing on a hill. It didn't look glorious. That is, Jesus didn't. But then as this text unfolds that we saw from last time, last few weeks actually, not only did Jesus not look glorious, We find out that his mission wasn't going to be so glorious on the front end. And those who follow him, you're going to follow him into a shameful, inglorious existence. It's not going to feel too glorious either to follow Jesus. He's going to be shamefully murdered, he told them. And he's calling all of us, you need to take up your cross and follow me into this lack of glory. And so when it gets really hard following Jesus, when you're not sure you can take it any longer... You have to ask, where's the glory, Jesus? Where's the good? Are you not a glorious and good God? I don't see it right now. I don't feel right now. This is really hard. I'm ready to just turn around. Is the sacrifice, is the daily dying worth it? Well, that's what this tremendous event, the transfiguration, was to assure them. Oh, it is absolutely worth it. Despite all the shame, despite all the trouble, despite all the hardship, Jesus is truly God, He's truly glorious, and He's truly bringing all His promises of glory to pass. Even if you can't see it right now, even if you don't feel right now, it's surely coming. And He gives you a sneak preview of that glory to prove it. There it is in verse 2 of Matthew 17. And He was transfigured before them, changed in appearance, and His face shone like the sun, and His clothes became white as light. This is, He pulls back His humanity to just let the divine glory blaze out of Him. And for that moment, 
on that hill, his trembling greatness just blasted over the disciples, removing all doubt of Jesus' true significance, glory, and weightiness, namely that he is God, even if you don't see it with your eyes physically. Well, then as God, that brings us to our next directive to carry us to the finish line, to give us assurance of his glory. If he is God, you need to hear that in Jesus... Jesus speaks, and he has God's unmatched authority. Verses 3 through 5. And in case that was still in question, what we have next is that the Father arrives to authenticate and testify, yeah, it's true. This is my Son. He speaks for God because he is God. And that clarification was needed, if you remember, because of something that Peter said. Peter observed that with Jesus, these two other guys were with him, Elijah and Moses. They'd appeared next to Jesus in his divine glory. And we know from reading Luke's gospel, as Moses and Elijah were getting ready to leave the scene, Peter blurts out this. This is actually taken from Luke chapter 9, verse 33. Peter says, Master, it's good that we are here, but let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Then Luke adds, not knowing what he said, as Peter so often did. But you might get this. Peter didn't want them to leave. You guys need a shelter? Oh, we'll make a tent. We can have a party here just for a long time on this mountain. Don't go. I want to hear from you. Stick around. I mean, you got Moses, the great lawgiver of the Old Testament. You got Elijah, probably the most powerful prophet in the Old Testament scriptures. Don't go, guys. But the glory and authority of Jesus will not be degraded, will not be equated with Moses and Elijah as great as they were among men. But Jesus was no mere man. And that was Peter's problem. By offering to build three tents, one for each of those men, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Oh, oh, yeah, I guess we'll build one for you, Jesus. No. And so the Father and the voice of the cloud comes from heaven in this cloud of glory to set the record straight. Verse 5. He was still speaking when, behold, that is, Peter was still speaking. He's interrupted, that is. When a bright cloud overshadowed them, And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. As the glory of God had appeared to Moses on Mount Sinai, and then even later to Elijah on a mountain, God's glory has now come to speak to Peter. And in such a sight, such a voice of glory, it casts Peter into the dust, terrified, trembling before the holy and almighty God which leads to the next directive that carries us, assures us of the coming glory. It's this. You need to find in Jesus God's great compassion. Find in Jesus God's great compassion. Verses 6 to 8. Because what we'll see here is that God's glory has never blazed so clear than in Jesus Christ and and in His hand of mercy. But as we've set it up, first you've got to, gra- to, to grasp, indeed, how marvelous, how, how tremendous is the compassion of our God. Yet you have to first know what's at stake when God comes to interact with you. You need to know what's at stake when a holy God comes to speak to you, to relate to you, to be near. Because we looked at this last time. When God gets close, things don't get safer for us. Right? We looked at Isaiah. Remember this? In Isaiah chapter 6. He saw the Lord in His glory seated on His throne, and it wasn't a comfort to Him. He wasn't 
saying something like, Peter, hey, this is great. Let's build some tents. Let's hang out. No, he saw, he saw God's glory and he said, woe is me, I'm undone. I'm going to die. Why? Because as he was so then aware of the pure holiness of God, he was ever then cognizant of his unworthiness and weakness and sinfulness. In short, I have no business being here. You ever been that feeling you've trespassed, you've come into a room you're not supposed to be in? That's what Isaiah felt to the greatest degree. And when you get discovered where you're someplace you're not supposed to be, you get humbled, you get low. And we observe here then, back in our text, the disciples' just reflexive reaction when the holiness of God comes before them. Verse 6, when the disciples heard this, the voice and the cloud, they fell on their faces. They got their nose in the dirt, they licked the dust, and they were terrified. Again, we remarked on this last time, but it's so fitting to review. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. To come before the presence of the living, a holy, and awesome God. Such that whenever you walk upon that, so to speak, in Scripture, you've walked into a terrible, dreadful event. At least for those experiencing it. And why is that? Why is it such a dreadful thing? Because of our sin. Because we've thrown God off. We've gone our own way. We've embraced our own rebellion. We are like criminals on the run trying to escape from authorities and suddenly it's like the spotlight comes on. You're naked before the holiness of God. You're dead to rights. You've been caught. And so then Peter and the disciples, they have the right response. Get low. Get down on your face. You're on holy ground. Again to verse 6, when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. Well, what are we to make of this? How are we supposed to have a relationship with a God like this? Where's hope to be found? Well, and actually, somewhat ironically, our hope lies, it rests back on the very character of this God. Because with the holiness of God that purifies, and in that sense scares sinners, there also comes with it a mercy that will shock you. For coupled with this dazzling pure light, this majestic holiness and, bur- and burning purity, there comes an unfathomable, an untouchable mercy, this remarkable compassion, this surprising grace found in our God when He approaches terrified, humble men. We see it even take place here in our text. Look at verse 7. They're down in the dust. Their noses are in the dirt. They're trembling. And Jesus came and touched them, verse 7, saying, rise. Have no fear. No fear. None. Don't be afraid. You don't need to fear me. That feeling you have, it's actually the right one. That trembling in your bones before me, but don't fear. That's not why my glory is here. My glory is here to save you, not hurt you. I'm going to show you a greater glory, one that's not going to merely eradicate and like burn away sin, but a glory and a greatness that will conquer it, forgive it, erase it, and overcome it. This is the greatness of our God, such that he can say, dear believer, rise up, do not fear. And really it is this surprising compassion that sets our glory of the glory of our God apart from anything else you might compare him to. 
It's what sets apart our God from all other so-called gods that you might devote yourself to. It's this, his mercy, his grace, his compassion. That's what sets his glory off beyond all others that we can imagine. And I want to show you that from a couple texts in Scripture even to expound upon this point. I want to go to an Old Testament text and then go to a New Testament one. So let's first, let's go way back in the Old Testament to Exodus. It's the second book in your Bibles, Exodus chapter 33 and 34. And to bring you up to speed, what's gone on? This is the book of Exodus, of course. And in Exodus 20, God had, he had just delivered the Israelites out of Egypt. And he said, we're now in relationship. You're my people and I'm your God. That's a pretty good thing. I'm pretty strong and I love you. But as my people, you need to live in light of my character. Here's my law. We know that is the Ten Commandments that comes up in Exodus 20. And if you remember, what did Israel do? Pretty much in response to receiving the Ten Commandments. Well, they basically immediately broke them. They built a golden calf. They worshipped other gods, disobeying at least the first two commandments straight out of the gate. And then to that, God says, listen, I'm going to go take you to the promised land, or I was going to go with you, but I can't go with you anymore. I'm not sure if I go with you that I won't just consume you in my justice of fire. I can't go with you. Basically, you're too sinful. And to that, Moses realized that's untenable. What makes it special is our relationship with you, not the land, not the deliverance. We need you. That's what we need is you. If you're not going to go with us, don't even bring us up from here. Show us mercy. Still let us be your people. Forgive our sins. For otherwise, we're not going to leave. And the Lord in his mercy forgives them. He says, okay, I'll still be your God. I'll still go with you. Even though you are sinful rebels. And in chapter 33, as Moses hears this truth, he almost can't believe it. But in light of such a grace and mercy, in verse 18, Moses then just asks. He asks for more. He says, Show me your glory. And to this again, God acquiesces, but in a qualified way. Verse 20, God says, okay, you want to see my glory? You want more of my grace? Here it comes. But in verse 20, it has to be qualified. You can't see my face, Moses. For man shall not see me and live. If you see me full frontal of my glory, you're going to be just consumed. You're going to die. And so the Lord plans to hide Moses in the cleft of a rock of a mountain. And while hidden in the rock of the mountain, the, Lord, the Lord's going to pass by him. His glory is going to pass by. And in that sense, his glory is going to be more felt, I think. Certainly going to be more heard than anything seen with his eyes. And yet it's a glorious, if we could say it, sight to behold. Because then as we come to it, as we look now at Exodus 34, it's what is heard is what is remembered. Because while Moses is shielded in the cleft of the rock, the Lord passes by. Verse 5 of Exodus 34, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of Yahweh. It's translated here, the Lord. And so here comes the glory of God, and it's coming to Moses as God promised. This is the taste of glory, and, but notice this, it's coming in a proclamation, 
It's coming in a declaration of who our God is, what he's like. Here is the character of our God. In that sense, behold and hear the glory of God. And that's what this glory is. If you would see it face to face, physically, in your sinful flesh, you'd be consumed. But this glory is governed and it radiates with mercy. Hear this. Hear the proclamation that he is the Lord. Look at verses 6 and 7. The Lord, or Yahweh, passed before Moses and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He's keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, who by no means cleared the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. But as you take that all in, what do you discover about your God? What's he like? How is he described here? How does he describe himself? How does he glorify himself? He says, I'm the merciful God. I'm the gracious God. I'm the patient God. I'm the God that so abounds in love, it just overflows down to others for thousands of generations is the idea. He's the God defined by, characterized by mercy by forgiveness of every kind of sin you can think of. Iniquity, transgression, and sin. Those are the Hebrew words that are used to describe all kinds of sin. And he says, I can deal with them all. In other words, I assure you, your notions of his love and mercy are far too small. You see then in Israel's history, why did God do it this way? I mean, God knows how this is going to play out. He knows what's going to happen. Think about it. Why did he redeem them and then they so quickly rebel? Of course, it's because they're sinners. But why does he set it up this way, that they would be so quickly defiant? And, and then why does Moses then plead, say, show us mercy? Why does it work this way? God's establishing the platform and the stage, and he's putting the spotlight on who he is to say, you need to know what I'm like, and you know what you're going to find? I'm merciful. That's who I am. I'm gracious. I'm a forgiving God. That's been the story throughout the Bible, and we see it here in this pinnacle moment when he says, you want to see my glory? Hear this. I am the Lord, a God merciful and gracious and slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love far more than you know. And what should one do when one encounters a glory like this? Moses shows us what to do. Not because I think he thought it out beforehand. He's just overcome. Verse 8. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And then going on, not only is he brought low and humbled and worshiping now before the Lord, it goes on in verse 9 and he says, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. But note this, why should the Lord go in the midst of us? Why do we so need you with us? Oh God, why do I want you with us? For it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. Do you get that? I, we need you so desperately. Why? Because we're so sinful. I need you so much because I know my rebellion. I need you so much because I need a God who is like you who will be merciful. We have no hope outside of you. This is the greatness 
and glory of our God. And when you see this, when you get this mercy, you, so to speak, get low, you bow down, and you worship. That's one text. Let's look at the next one. Let's go to the New Testament this time. We're going to go to the very end. We're going to go to the book of Revelation. Two weeks ago, we looked at this text, uh, but we didn't get to finish it. So I want to go and revisit that now. Look at Revelation chapter 1. This is when John, the Apostle John, who was one of the twelve, he was one of those on the mountain of transfiguration. He's one of the closest to Jesus. That's reiterated about him in John's gospel. He is the one whom the Lord loved, like especially. He might have been a favorite disciple. The point is, he knew Jesus very well. He would ask Jesus questions. He would lean on his breast and whisper in his ear to get feedback and and information. He knew he could trust Christ. He was very close with him. But then he gets a view of Jesus, not in his humanity, but in his glory. And it's something that utterly shocks him. He knew Jesus very well, but he turns around to see a Jesus that he hadn't quite seen before. So here we are, Revelation chapter 1. Let's look at verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, John says. Verse 14 now. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, note this, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. That sound familiar? This is the glorified Jesus coming to see his friend, John the Apostle. John, who knew Jesus on earth so well, at this view of the true view of Jesus, he struck dumb, terrified, seeing Jesus in his glorified state. I mean, again, what does one do when you encounter a God like this? What does one do? How should one respond? Well, we'll see it with John, but to be clear, I don't think this was was some calculated response, as if a couple days before John was thinking, okay, when Jesus comes here, you know, he'll he'll show off a little bit, and that'll be great, and I'll be so happy, and and I'll get down on the ground, and oh, this will be this great interchange. No, of course not. The glory of God just blasts over him. And he has this knee-jerk, involuntary reaction of getting down on his face like a dead man. Verse 17, John says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Again, that's the appropriate right response of a sinner before a holy God. But that's not the end of the story. Instead of wallowing there in hopeless fear, as if he's just to wait for the for the holy fire to consume him. No, in our most desperate moment, instead of striking us with justice, he reaches out and touches us with compassion, with mercy. Why? Because that's what our God is like. Look at this Christ. Verse 17, again, in full. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Again, that's the right response. But he laid his right hand on me. That God you saw in glory laying his hand on you? But then he said something. Fear not. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid before my glory. You're mine. He laid hands on him, not to destroy him, but to assure him and receive him. 
You're mine. And with that compassionate touch comes these words of assurance. Look at verse 17 as it goes on. Fear not, Jesus says. I'm the first and the last. I am the living one. I died. And behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. That means you don't need to die, John. My glory's here in full, but you don't need to die because I died for you. Because I got the keys. I'm getting you out of here. You're mine. I bought you. I died for you. You're mine. I will not touch you in my holiness to destroy you. I came in my glory to defeat sin and death to win the love of God for you. Know me, bask in my glory. He laid hands on him, not to destroy him, but to do what? To show him mercy. What a glorious God in Christ. But flipping back then to Matthew 17, this was not the first time John felt that reassuring hand. Back in our text, Matthew chapter 17, verse 7, As they trembled before the glory of Christ and the voice of God coming from the cloud, verse 7, but Jesus came and touched them. Rise, do not fear. But how can that be? That we would not fear before this God, but by only his death for all of our sins. That he satisfied the justice of God. How else? By that he clothes us in his righteousness. That the Father and Jesus see us as perfectly righteous before him. That's a gift received by faith. And because of that, he says, do not fear. Rise. There's no condemnation for you, as Paul puts it, ever. It's gone. Such that even as the author of Hebrews puts it, you can actually draw near because of Christ and what he's done. You draw near with boldness before this God. That's how powerful the glory of God to win the salvations of sinners actually is. Is there a God like this? In the face of such compassion, such unreserved mercy, can you not see his glory? A glory to, his glory to you and your rebellion and your delight in other things in your pursuit and love for other things of this world. Can you not see his goodness to you? Can you not see then he's worth trusting in, even when it hurts to follow him? What other masters or gods or whatever you might be devoting yourself to, whatever else would be so good to you as this Christ? Where else can you turn and find such words of life? No career will be so merciful to you as Christ will be. No relationship on earth will be so forgiving for you as Christ will be. No amount of worldly acceptance, popularity will last for you like the love of Christ that was bought that he would then never forsake you. And don't think like alcohol or substance abuse or or whatever escapism tactic you have to try and get past the pain of this world. You know that's not going to be any good to you. That only numbs the pain. It delays it. But Christ, by taking your sins, he took the greatest real of pain that we all feel because of sin. He took the pain, too, of the real justice of God to come to us. And he assures us, yes, there might be pain now, but there's a glory coming. Trust me. So follow him. And get this, even with this Christ, you can follow him even when you have failed him. To take us back to our opening analogy, maybe you got out of line. Maybe you've been walking the other way. 
Maybe you found another line to get in saying, oh, maybe this is more better, more worth it. And you're, you know it's not. Well, with a Jesus like this, it's not too late to turn around and get back in line following him. He calls you. He invites you to come back in line. You need to hear those gospel words. If you come to me, I'll never cast you out. But you've got to come. You've got to wait. But you've got to come. I'll never put you away. And understand this. There's no other thing, person, or God, whatever your master would be, that would be so merciful to you as him. Christian, hear those words from your Savior. Rise. Do not fear. Do you yet see his glory? Don't you want more of it? What does it look like? Keep following him. Trust him. The glory's coming. Trust him. Fourth, how do we hold this glory before our minds of faith? How does it carry us to the very end? Well, really, it comes to this conclusion that you need to see that in Jesus, God's glory is veiled right now. Uh, To put it in the vernacular of Christian books these days, you need to understand it's expressly not your best life now. It's not intended to be. God, by design, makes the glory veiled through suffering so that you trust and walk after Him, that you live by His word, by faith, not by sight in what you want in this world. And that's made very clear here that His glory is veiled because He veils it for them again. Of course, the glory disappears in its appearance And then as they come down the mountain, as we're back in Matthew 17, verse 9, he tells them, hey, you got to keep this quiet. He puts a gag order on them. Don't blab about what you just saw on the mountain, verse 9. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, commanded, note that, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Now, he's being pretty strict about this, isn't he? I mean, he commands them. He can't tell anybody about this. It's a secret for now. And yet, note that he says it's a secret in effect for now. There will come a day that you can tell all who you might encounter about this, but you've got to wait till I rise from the dead, which by implication means you need to wait till I get betrayed, till I get killed, till I die for sin, and then I rise from the dead. And then you've got to go tell all the world. Fast forward to Matthew 28, and that's exactly where we're at, right? We're supposed to tell all the world about the greatness of our Christ that he's a God who pursues and shows mercy to sinners. And he's done it because he died for our sins and rose from the dead. But where we are in this gospel, not yet. Not until he's completed his mission. Because that was the thing. The disciples didn't quite understand the Messiah's mission. Remember, they expected glory right away. They expected victory over the Romans. They expected all of the loose living Israelites to be destroyed and put away and they would reign with Jesus at his right and left hand. But the, and there would be glory forevermore. But Jesus has been telling them, remember from the previous weeks, he's been telling them, no, my mission isn't first glory. My mission is first suffering, then glory. The disciples had a hard time picking that up, didn't they? Remember that? When Peter first heard about this at the end of chapter 16, he was like, uh-uh, my Savior's not going to die. My King's not supposed to die. And then Jesus told him, hey, you're sounding a lot more like Satan than you are one of my followers. But anyway, so this gag order gets put on them because they don't yet understand it. They're going to have to wait until the glory comes in the resurrection. You can see their abiding confusion in this respect. In the next question, they pose Jesus. He tells them, don't tell anybody. And then they have a question to ask him. 
because they don't understand how this is working. Verse 10, and the disciples asked Jesus, then why do the scribes say that the first, that first Elijah must come? See, they understood from a prophecy in Malachi that Elijah was going to arrive before God brought his justice and salvation to the earth. It comes from this prophecy right here in Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. It reads this way, the Lord says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he, Elijah, will turn or restore the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. But so you hear there that an Elijah, he's going to come before the great day of the Lord. And then that day of the Lord was associated with the Messiah, that he was the one to enact God's justice and to save God's people. In summary, that means the order or sequence goes like this. Elijah comes, he's going to get the people ready. The Messiah comes on the scene He enacts God's judgment upon the world, and then God's glory reigns forevermore. That's what the disciples were expecting. And so then they go back to Jesus. But Jesus, you're talking about dying. How does that work? That makes no sense. And besides that, not only are you talking about dying, where's Elijah? Because actually, didn't we just see him? But he left. (laughs) Where, where, Where is he gone? Uh, What don't we get, Jesus? Help me out here. What did we miss? And to all this, Jesus has a twofold response. First, he says, you got it right in that Elijah's supposed to come first. Verse 11, he answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. He's going to come. He's going to do his job and restore all things here. He's talking about he's going to turn people's hearts and get them ready for the Messiah. But then Jesus elaborates and clarifies in verse 12. But I tell you, Jesus says, that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So it's true, Elijah's got to come first, but guys, he already did. Don't you remember? He came as the Messiah's forerunner preparing the way, but many missed it because they expected the wrong thing. They didn't recognize the coming Elijah, they missed him. Why? Because the coming Elijah wasn't even supposed to be a resurrected, reincarnated, powerful prophet Elijah. But actually, what we found out is that he was a strange, out in the boonies, backwards, powerful preacher named John the Baptist. Jesus even told the crowds in Matthew chapter 11, verse 14, Jesus said this, If you are willing to accept it, John the Baptist is Elijah who is to come. And he's talking about that prophecy from Malachi. Furthermore, in Luke's gospel, we would have heard this. When the angel Gabriel announced the miraculous birth of John the Baptist, here's what the angel told John's father. He said this. This is Luke chapter 1, verse 17. He said, And your son will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, namely to do what? To make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And so the heavenly angel proclaimed, and Jesus understood that prophecy in Malachi about a coming Elijah was not going to be Elijah coming back down from heaven, the person from the Old Testament, and certainly not any kind of like reincarnation. That's entirely unbiblical. Rather, John the Baptist, 
was going to fulfill that Isaiah role. And if you remember, how did John dress? He dressed like Elijah. What did he eat? He ate like Elijah. And what did he do? He preached repentance like Elijah. He is the Elijah-like forerunner preparing the way for the Messiah that Malachi prophesied. But it turns out most in Israel were not willing to accept him or his message. And so they did whatever they pleased with him, as Jesus said. And what does that mean? Well, it means they killed him. They put him to death as their civic leader, Herod, had John the Baptist beheaded for calling out his sins. You remember that from Matthew chapter 14. And here's the logic, though. If that's how they treated John the Baptist, the Elijah forerunner, what are they going to do to the Son of Man, the Messiah he talked about? Verse 12 again. But I tell you that Elijah's already come. They didn't recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. So what's the common denominator here? Suffering. That is the way the glory of God is veiled in this life. It's veiled by suffering. The Son of Man is going to suffer. The Elijah suffered. And so suffering continues for the people of God. And that's what's starting to dawn on them just a little bit as it comes down to verse 13. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Again, in this way, the ministry of John the Baptist as the Elijah, and of course the ministry of the Messiah, was not at all what the disciples or the Israelites were expecting. They were expecting glory, and they get suffering. But understand, that's the way of the Christian life, isn't it? That's the way of Christ our Savior. He suffered most shamefully, ingloriously, painfully, to then be raised up. And resurrected in glory. You see, there's a cross, then there's a crown. What do we have with John the Baptist? He suffered unjustly by the hands of a sinful ruler. But now he's more alive than ever in the presence of God. There was a cross, then a crown. And what's the path then to follow Jesus Christ? What is it? Take up your cross and follow me. And whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospel... You'll save it. You'll get the crown. After the weary load rode the long race, there comes a glorious crown. Hear it from a Christian who ran that hard but painful race very well. The Apostle Paul, 2 Timothy, 2 verses, uh, 2 Timothy 4, verses 7 and 8. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And note this, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. But we wait for it and we look. See, this Christian life right now, it's a battle. It's a hard road. It's a marathon. But it's worth it. It's worth keeping on track. It's worth believing. It's worth fighting for faith. It's worth fighting against sin. It's worth plotting every difficult step down the road, one after the other, because there's a glory to come. The cross is worth it. The pain is worth it because the crown of seeing that Savior face to face is more worth it than you can imagine. But get this. Your capacity then to keep fighting the fight of faith, to keep walking after Jesus down the hard road, to keep obeying Him, 
your motivation is going to correspond directly to how tenaciously and constantly you keep that glimpse of glory before your face. You keep the character of God of what he's like before your eyes of faith. And I got no better way for you to do it than you deep dive into that gospel. Because what do you find? Yes, he's a God of blazing glory, of his holiness, but that's coupled with a mercy that is beyond compare. Brothers and sisters, let that dominate your thinking. Let that be the fuel of your spiritual, spiritual car to keep you running, to keep you bearing that cross down the hard road to follow Jesus. Because then you can be like Paul. I don't think there's any Christian who suffered as much as he did in many ways. And yet, how is he able to persevere? How is he able to go through? He tells us in 2 Corinthians, he says, even in all of that, we don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this, he compares it light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So how do we do it? We look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen, they're transient, temporary, they go away. But the things that are unseen, they are eternal. Rivet your minds, brothers and sisters, on that coming glory. Confirmed to us by this glimpse of glory on the Mount of Transfiguration, but most of all secured for us by a risen Jesus ever interceding for you. With that glory in view, we have no need to lose heart. Let's pray that for one another.